Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books Network, Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking to Sarah Mock about her new book, Farm and Other F-Words, The Rise and Fall of the Small Family Farm. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, your book was fantastic. All right, so I enjoyed it. Uh, had a bunch of laughs, uh, some some heartfelt moments, uh, definitely some anger that showed up uh, with reading some of the stories you tell in here. But tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to kind of write this book. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually grew up on a farm in Wyoming myself. Uh, so that's how my my agricultural journey got started. Uh, left after high school thought I was going to go do something so much more important. I very much grew up in a small town where, you know, everyone is just sitting around saying, the second I turn 18, I'm going to get out of here. Uh, so did that, uh, went to college, realized that I actually having these agricultural roots was one of the most interesting and unique things about me. Uh, so ended up coming, circling back around halfway through and being interested in agriculture, especially from an international lens, went abroad for a few years, um, a few years for a year and was interested in kind of international development, um, but was fascinated by how many of the issues that I was seeing in the global South were actually the same kind of problems that we have in rural America. Uh, there was a lot of overlap and a lot of lessons to be learned that I was, there were a lot of things that I saw that I was familiar with from where I grew up. And I was like, oh, wow, there's solutions in this part of the world to these problems. We don't use them at home, though. Uh, so ended up coming back, um, spent a couple years in Silicon Valley thinking, you know, maybe tech was the solution, very starry eyed about startups and the, all the things that tech was going to do to save the world. Uh very quickly got that beat out of me by, you know, some good 90, 100 hour work weeks and just being very overwhelmed by the that lifestyle um, and somehow made the leap from there to journalism reporting, came to Washington uh, during the Trump administration to report on the USDA Congress and the White House, thinking that journalism would get, was going to be chill relative to the startup life. But it turns out that is not true reporting, also very demanding, but uh, in a very different way, in a way that I had a lot of fun with. Uh, it was funny to be back. I actually, one of my first jobs out of high school was at the USDA. And then to be back working inside the USDA building here in Washington was fascinating to see just how many challenges that organization faces to do anything really at all, period. Uh, especially under the Trump administration, it was very understaffed. Um, but yeah, Three and a half, three years or so at RFD TV, uh, the national broadcast network that I worked for, and then I took the leap into freelance and have been a freelance reporter for the last, oh, 
almost two years, which feel like about a decade and a half with the pandemic, but uh, spent some of my downtime uh, while we were stuck inside getting back to this book that I actually started originally in 2016, 2017 in there uh, and finished it up during the pandemic when I had no, I was sure I was not going to miss anything being home all the time, working on the book. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a fun, uh, it, it's definitely started out being a very different book than it ended up being. Uh, I, when I first pitched it in 2016, 2017, it was a very different idea. And it's basically just the harder I tried to write that first book I pitched, the more I realized that I had some things very wrong. Some, I was wrong about some of the ideas I had. And, uh, honestly, like unpacking those in inconsistencies that those ideas that I had incorrect were are kind of what this book is. It's just like, oh God, I got all these things wrong and here's how I figured out why I got them wrong and why I think a lot of us get them wrong a lot of the time. Yeah, I think the book is fantastic in terms of kind of the the balanced and blend of truth with regard to agriculture. Um, I really appreciated the way that you've, I mean, you didn't hold back, but you definitely gave a lot of the nuances that get missed when you have the polarized conversation. And so to kind of stem from the thesis of the book, which I hope I, I, I saw correctly, you asked this question in the beginning, kind of what exactly do we mean by a good farm? And you're on this mission to figure out what is, what is this good farm that, that we envision and we talk about and maybe feel all the feels about, but what is it? What is it really? And so you got to have this notion of, is it size? Is it wealth, income, age of farmer, age of farm? And you go through all of these and more to kind of figure it out. And so tell us a little bit about kind of that journey and some of the things you've discovered along the way of like, what is it? And maybe where do we get it wrong? Yeah. So I, all of that started, all of this kind of exploring started because uh, when I first, you know, I definitely grew up in like the omnivore's dilemma generation of people who, you know, I grew up thinking that farming was not sexy or cool or interesting. And then I read the omnivore's dilemma and I was like, oh my gosh, wait, it could be cool. It could be interesting. People, I could have a legitimate career doing this work. Uh, and I met a lot of young people who had returned to the farm or who had gotten into agriculture after reading that sort of thing. And just the number of them that I've seen go out of business in the last 10 years start and go out of business in the span of 10 years is just, it's most of them or their, their business has changed so radically in the scope of, in the span of 10 years that it's basically like it's become a hobby or it's become kind of a side project or, you know, it's, it has become a nonprofit, any number of different kind of routes to having a big dream of creating a farm business and inevitably over a relatively short period of time, it just like completely falling apart. At the same time, I knew all these older established farmers who were in a lot of ways, like not capturing the ideal that these young farmers were, uh, but who were doing quite well, very well, I would say, you know, um, and I, the original book that I pitched was like, you know, these young farmers have all these things we want. They're environmentally minded, they're community focused, they care about feeding people, um, they want to revitalize rural America. They want to take care of their, they want to like, they care about health and environmental health and all these things. And then there's these old farmers. And if, if there's some way to like make those, make the mesh to, to 
teach these young farmers, whatever the lessons that these older farmers have learned is, then maybe we could create some stability for young farmers. Uh, and, you know, I could stop watching all of my friends basically just go and run themselves ragged on a farm and then inevitably when they're 50, go back to, I don't know, whatever they were doing before because they inevitably failed. So started diving into what that is, spent a lot of time with a, a farmer who's in the book, Jan Mills, uh, mm -hmm. who farms in Virginia, like two years hanging around, being annoying and just like coming to his farm and he would like drive me around and show me things and talk to me about stuff. And basically just like the harder I looked, the more I realized that like, you know, in a lot of ways, his farm is not what we think of as a good farm. It's 5,000 acres of commodity grains. It, you know, they, def they cut down forests regularly on their property. They, they drain wet natural wetlands and then put in artificial wetlands in, in let in more marginal acres to like get wetland credits. So they, they're destroying like actual good environmental resources and then putting in worse versions, which is truly kind of comical, but, uh, but at the same time, like very effective producers um, in terms of like being economically stable and financially stable have been around for 16 generations. Um, and it was basically just like the harder I looked at, you know, all of these things that are supposed to make a difference, you know, how you the practices you use and the how much you care about your community, how much you care about your family, how much you care about legacy or I don't know, all of these kind of like touchy feely intangibles. It's just the money. It's it's just basically like whether you're rich or not. And if you're wealthy and can stay wealthy, and, and one of the biggest ways that farms are wealthy is through land holding. Um, you know, having bought uh, J.N. Mills had, still has the original deed to his farm, which was bought from the King of England in like the 1600s. It cost 40 shillings, which was like 22 days late wages at the time. It's now worth like $10 million. So pretty good rate of return there. <laughs> uh, and I don't really know how you would, how a young farmer who is getting started, you know, in 2021 or in 2010 would have any leg to stand on against people who literally like that is how wealth accumulates and without wealth there, like that is who you're competing against when you go out and try and, and purchase farmland or get into farming. So digging into that kind of wealth question and then the adjacent labor questions and the kind of questions around, you know, how all of our agricultural policy works, how ag economics works and how we think about it. Um, just really unwound. So we, there's like 1 million books out there called like how to make your small, smart farm, how to make your small farm profitable, how to homestead, you know, how to raise chickens profitably, how to raise goats profitably. And they, they're so hyper-focused on practices and production and like how to plan and manage. And like none of those books ever talk about just like, were you born rich? Because that is really the main thing that works. Or, you know, did you or did, were you an investment banker and then you retired and now you are now you are rich? That also helps if that is an option for you. So I think that was getting into that wealth question was super important for me as part of my journey. And then the fascinating thing that happened is I started to try and talk to people about this and people just cannot hear it. They they do not want to hear it. They're not interested in that story. Like we are so attached to a really idyllic figure of a farm. Um, 
And that's, you know, when I, when I finally got to this question of like, what is a good farm? This was the kind of core of that question for me was I, the number of times that I'd heard, especially in interviews, the, the unchallenged sentence, most farmers are good people or farmers are good people. And just like, oh, really? Like, how do you know that? What other, what other profession could you possibly say that about and like not be challenged? And everyone just like believe that that is inherently true. Um, so ha- keeping having all of that in mind and then kind of going at it from understanding that to be able to have a conversation about wealth and, and labor exploitation and kind of so many of these not so idyllic parts of agriculture had to start by challenging people at like at the core of that our attachment to who farmers are as people is kind of, I guess, how I got to that. Let's try and talk about what a good farm is instead of just assuming that all farms are good farms, which is what we usually do. Yeah. And you, you mentioned these books and I've got uh, the John Jevons book here, how to grow more vegetables, fruits, nuts, and and other, and other things. Right. And, and I've, I've opened it. I used it. It's, I mean, it, it does all the things. It tells you what season, all the, all the planting knowledge, but, it, but you're right. I mean, it comes down, you have, you make a really good case um, presenting USDA NAS data and a whole bunch of other examples that there's more to the story. And, and it's not even, it's not even just this notion of wealth, or you talk explicitly about the notion of being cash, like the cash conversation versus the wealth and you, and you come back to this notion of like the early McDonald's conversation. And so talk a little bit more about how you got to and how people discussed and, and, and I appreciate you bringing it up, like people don't want to talk about it, but so talk a little bit more about your experience engaging people with the notion of like cash poor versus kind of the, how this idea of real estate. Yeah, that is the first time that I talked to someone really directly about this was actually uh, someone who's quoted in the book, Christine Sue, who started a, a startup pasture maps that um, is basically just like a managed grazing piece of technology that helps people move cattle uh, through a different through different paddocks. But um, yeah, she was the first person who kind of elevated it to me as like, you know, we are basically farmers have two businesses. They always do. And they like always have, right. It's there's a production business where every year you, you take input, you take inputs into your business and you create a product and then you sell it. But there's a second business that's even more important and probably like the biggest store of wealth and assets in the average farm operation, which is the real estate part, which is just like farmland appreciates over time. It is a store of value. As long as interest rates remain relatively low, like the, it, as long as you can cover the property taxes, which agricultural tax rates are some of the, the property tax rates are the lowest in the country in almost every state. As long as you can cover that somehow, you will continue to build wealth over time. And so, you know, this is, it, it was important to Christine and has been important in a, a lot of conversations I've had in the tech world, because there's this assumption that if farmers can just make a little bit more money, that's going to make a big difference to them. Like if you can tell a farmer, you know, you're going to make $10 more an acre or $15 more an acre, that that's going to be a, some transformative economics for them, right? This is the whole idea behind incentivizing for better environmental practices or incentivizing for, you know, carbon sequestration. But the number of farmers that I met, that I have met, both in my work for tech companies and as a journalist who have been presented with information, choices, 
technology where it's like, if you just adopt this technology, if you just change your seed variety, if you just, you know, here's data from aggregated data from a hundred thousand acres that show if you just use this seed instead of the seed you're using, you could see, you know, 15, $17 an acre difference in, uh, productivity. And just like farmers are just like, eh, no, thanks. I do it the way I do it. And I like to do it that way. And I was so confused by that, not only from just, a, you know, coming from a background of like, you know, farmers are smart business people. They're inevitable entrepreneurs. They, you know, they work hard and they are, they run their businesses really effectively, but also from just like the, aren't the basic economics of like, aren't business owners supposed to be profit seeking? Like, why would you leave margin on the table if you had really good evidence that you shouldn't, that there was margin on the table. And I think digging into this book and doing the research really showed that, you know, one of the key things that's happening there is farmers, if you have the combination of owned land and some amount of income, which any farmer who's growing commodity grains in the United States has some amount of income, right? Because you are eligible for commodity programs through the USDA. If you own your land and you are eligible for any of those programs, which you are, if you grow grain, you have universal basic income, which means as long as you hold your land and pay your property taxes every year, you will continue to build wealth over time, which means why, like, why would you be incentivized to change anything about the way you farm? You don't need to, you don't need to farm better. You don't need five, 10, $15 more an acre. You, you get all the money you need and no one can force you to sell your land. And it gets, you know, Farmland has performed that outperformed the S&P 500 40 out of the last 50 years. It, you are holding this. It, it's not a business. It's an investment. You have an investment class and you are holding it like a trust fund. And as long as you keep holding it and can pay like the very small amount of money you need to keep holding it, you are just playing farmer. You, you don't need to do it well. You just have to do it. You just have to do it at all. You just have to try. You have to put something in the ground. And I think that because we believe that all farmers are good people and that farmers don't act that way, we assume that that's not happening. But I think you can look around anywhere in the United States right now. And, you know, I cover crops are a great example of, you know, we have less than 5% uptake in cover crops, despite the fact that you can get paid to do it in all 50 states and by the USDA. And that like no clear example that, you know, farmers ha do already see like farmers don't need to get paid to do cover crops. P farmers will do it themselves because it there is a benefit to the bottom line. So if you can get a benefit to your bottom line and get paid to do it, there's literally no explaining why fewer than 5% of farmers will do it other than that farmers are responding to incentives that aren't just economic. And I think that that's I don't know. We have to talk about that. We have to talk about the fact that we've a lot, we have basically universal basic income for farmers. Yeah, you you point to that, and we'll, we'll come back to that that notion again because um, I want to pull a quote from the the text. But going back to say, I guess two of these points, and and Jay and Mills, right? It, I mean, farmers are savvy. The the way you describe what they're doing, and whether or not we agree with some of the practices. I mean, they're, they're, that's savvy right there, the way that that, that farm is being managed and, and diversifying income. I mean, it's, it's, it's smart business and yeah, you get into the roots and we'll talk about it later. Like, is it, is it fair that it's, that he, that they started with a whole bunch of land? I, I, yeah, that's some of the big questions, but the way that it's been diversified and 
but that's not everyone. And you, and you make that point. And, and I forget the name of the person you reference, but you get into this notion of like the gig farmer. And there is a really important point there um, that you, you quoted the person on that kind of one about a third of their incomes co- coming from what they sell. And at that point they realized this isn't sustainable. This, this, this really isn't sustainable. So talk a little bit more. And you, you just mentioned, but talk about that conversation and this notion of a gig farmer and kind of that person's realization that it was time to get out. Yeah. So the farmer in Montana, Lyle Benjamin, um, who was very cool, very, uh, a, a, by all indications, like a really, a truly excellent farmer. Um, and just like moved to a place in Montana where he described it as, you know, you buy your crop, basically you put in a ton of inputs and you have good equipment and you just take and and you, everything that you put in the ground comes right back out. And you just, that is how you get the crop that you need, which is a very expensive way to farm. uh, He found out. And the difference between the way he was farming and the way his neighbors were farming is that he had to cover a land rent. Uh, which all his neighbors that he was he was seeing doing these same practices and assuming that it would make sense for him owned their ground. So that was the I guess the miscalculation. I I will say, you know, forty percent of farmland in the United States is rented currently, but most of that is rented by people in addition to some owned farmland. Only seven percent of farmers in the U.S. are are full tenants, um, like Lyle was at the time. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's the thing about farmland rent is that basically landlords get to choose what happens on their land based on the rent they charge, right? If you maximize your rents, you have to maximize your extraction. You have to find a farmer who's going to pull every little bit out of the soil and turn it into cash because that's the only way they're going to afford to be able to pay your rents. And at the same time, we're looking at you know, people are starting to get excited about things like carbon sequestration, about regenerative agriculture, sustainable practices, organic. But, you know, when we think about those rented acres and tenant farmers period, which is how most people who don't inherit land get into agriculture, you can't do any of that stuff and pay top rents, which is what people want. Like what landlords want, I should say. Um, Especially, you know, if you, you know, this is back to farmland as an asset class. If you're, if the main way that you interact with your farm, your, your family farmland is through a spreadsheet, which is true for a lot of absentee landowners, you're not going to find it compelling to hear someone say like, Hey, I'd love to pay a hundred dollars less per acre and really, you know, experiment with regenerative or really experiment with cover crops or changing my tillage practices or cutting my nutrient applications. That's just like, like it sounds nice, but you're leaving, but you just don't have to, you could just find someone else who's going to give you all the money. And that's what most people do. And even if, you know, I think a lot of young farmers, small young farmers will find a landlord who are interested in it for a few years. And then inevitably, it seems these landlords decide like, oh, but I could just get more money from someone else. And it's so hard to deal with you as like a relatively unstable young beginning farmer who, you know, maybe doesn't always pay on time, maybe, you know, needs more from me to take care of this land. Or I could just go find someone who's going to send me a nice check straight from his USDA check every year at the same time and who never bothers me about anything. And yeah. And then we wonder why small, but why beginning farmers can't access land rented or otherwise is because, because farming is one of the least lucrative things you can do with land. Yeah. And so the, and, and, and in that discussion, uh, the person 
that was doing that you write about with the third of the income coming from sales kind of realized that the other incomes coming from the the commodity type programs that you've talked about. And for them, it was a realization like this isn't sustainable. Uh, but you know, kind of if, if, and I, 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 for one, and I don't know how the design of the programs, they need to change, but I, as a consumer, am willing and believe that we should take on some of the risk with the farmer. And so there's definitely this notion of, of risk that we should all be utilizing together. But there are some programs that aren't necessarily working the way they're supposed. Well, actually, you make the point they work exactly the way they're supposed to, right? But maybe we set them up in the, the, wrong, the wrong way. We're expecting things from them. But you have this notion that Yes, if we're going to do this, we have to have open eyes that's not temporary assistance, but it is that universal or that guaranteed income that you that you mentioned earlier. Uh, so that was a big point. But then to, on the flip side, right? So we've been talking about kind of this notion of wealth and, and really hard access to, to young farmers, which you thought maybe the age of the farmer matters. And so we got into that a little bit. But and the, the other thing is maybe what they grow. Uh, maybe that's what a good farm is. And so you ask the question, kind of why don't more farms grow food? And and for those who haven't read the text yet, um, food in, in this case is kind of uh, not commodities, but fruits, veg, and, and, and other types of things. So talk a little bit more about that question and kind of the the answer you've discovered. Yeah, that great segue out of because Lyle, I think in a lot of ways, like Clay, who is another farmer, um, a farmer from Nebraska, both are actually, you know, kind of young. I think they're both under 40, done the commodity thing and just aren't really interested in it anymore. I mean, Lyle has actually left farming um, and has gone into the industry because he he didn't want to do it anymore. But we actually had a follow-up conversation where I, I asked him, you know, is there anything that could get you back into farming? And he said, yeah, I want to farm a lot fewer acres, a lot more intelligently. And I, I would want to actually grow food. I, I would want to grow things that people eat. I don't want to grow an anonymous commodity that gets shipped off to China and, you know, blended with a hundred thousand other farmers corn or soybeans or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think Clay was, is the farmer from Nebraska that I think also really captures that idea, uh, and is really interested in doing something different, but kind of trapped, feels trapped in this space of, you know, I, farmer in Nebraska, some irrigated land, you know, 3000 acres, the average, you know, a big fruit and vegetable farm in California say is like a hundred acres. 100 acres of lettuce is a lot of lettuce. 100 acre to, uh, acres of peppers or tomatoes is a lot of peppers or tomatoes. It takes hundreds of people to harvest, weed, plant, manage those crops in a way that, you know, let alone like pack and distribute, which is a whole other part that, you know, corn and soybeans, you just, you pump, you cut them down and pump them out of a, of a semi into a silo and you're off to the races. But, you know, I think and, and that for for a farmer like Clay, you know, young, progressive, interested in, in farming in a very different way, interested, I think, which is part of the thing of this whole story that gives me hope is that, you know, he is kind of the poster child for young farmers who have moved beyond what I think a lot of older farmers have, you know, farmers who sur survived the 1980s basically came out with like one lesson, one rule of thumb. I have to own it. Like debt is the enemy. And I will own my land, I will own all my stuff, and I will not make any financial decisions that will in any way jeopardize my ownership of like my core assets. That is a really tough position to be in as a business owner, especially today when interest rates are very low. Um, 
and a little debt probably wouldn't hurt. Uh, and at the same time, it's very hard for a business that is notoriously has struggles with ca- with cash flow, right? Because how are you ever going to, you know, as mentioned, you know, produce farms not only take a lot more labor um, on the production side, they also take a lot more labor, you know, a lot more marketing, a lot more management, um, food safety, you know, people feeding humans is a lot more demanding in terms of having effective business practices than feeding animals or feeding, you know, plastics companies. Um, so that is one of the challenges, the key challenges for someone like Clay who wants to transition is just like, you know, how am I going to attract young, smart professionals to my town of 500 people in rural Nebraska? He's starting to think about things like, you know, how can I use the equity in my business? How can I use the farmland that we own leverage to, you know, offer better wages, better benefits to potential employees that would come. So labor is a big limitation for why, um, you know, farmers don't grow as much food, especially, you know, we look at places like Nebraska and Iowa, you could, in most parts of Nebraska and Iowa, you can grow almost any crop. Um, you know, I think we have this idea in our minds that only corn grows in Iowa. And like, if you want fresh fruits or vegetables that only grows in California or the Pacific Northwest, like that's just not true. Iowa, you could grow basically anything in Iowa. Um, and even in places where you can't grow as many things, we have pretty cheap greenhouse technology that could really go a long way in for a season extension. Um, so the other part of that whole equation is just about land, quantity of land. Basically, we're back to for farmland to be farmland, you have to farm it. And farmland, it, most a lot of farmers would struggle to keep as much land as they do if they didn't get subsidized taxes, basically, if they didn't pay an agricultural tax rate. So part of the problem is that when you own 3000 acres, like Clay does in Nebraska, you need to farm all 3000 acres, you need to have them in agricultural production, because if you don't, then suddenly you have to pay some other kind of tax on them, maybe you put them, you know, you could turn them over into some kind of wilderness or wildland, but then you're paying just like regular, you just own that. So you either have to sell it, trans do all of probably to get the money to do all the work of transitioning to some other crop, especially a food crop, um, because that also takes a ton of investment. And then you'd end up with what, like 50, 100 acres of a fruit or vegetable farm, which could be great. But at the same time, you've spent three, your family has spent three generations owning this land. This is the investment that they made. This is the, this is what you were doing. This is what farming was about, right? Like we really love, it's very heartwarming to hear a farmer say, I do what I do for my children. But, but, let's remember that like, that's not what business is usually. Like you don't build businesses for your children. You build businesses to like have a, to, to create jobs, to have a place in your community, to like get things done, to deliver products. You, you make investments for your children. And so like, if your farm is an investment class, great, let's call it that. And let's stop treating it like a business and giving it all of the benefits and, you know, exemptions that we offer to businesses. But if we want to treat it like a business, it should probably be less about how your children are going to have it and more about like, is it profitable? Is it effective? Is it delivering good products? Do people like the products? Are they safe? <laughs> are they, Is there a market for them? Is there an opportunity? Are you able to grow? Are you able to create jobs? Are your jobs safe? Et cetera. Yeah, I appreciate you making the point. And, and the question is an important one to ask because often you just see that there's land, they're farmers, why can't they just switch? And and you note a bunch of issues. Uh, 
big ones being infrastructure. The infrastructure is different. Uh, labor, labor is the a big one, uh, and then markets. Right, it's easy. You know, in the book, I, you've got the the silos set up where you've kind of know where you're going and taking it. And um, you know the prices, whether or not you agree with the prices, but you at least know uh, versus when you get into kind of fruit, veg and and, and, and that produce, it, you've got to develop this. And, and that's a hard thing. And that's a whole nother part of the business. And you note from a lot of times in the book uh, that people want to just be on the ground doing it. They don't, the work that they enjoy isn't the work of creating the market. Uh, yes. They they enjoy being in the combine. They enjoy being on the ground. They enjoy scouting their 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 plants, their crops. Uh, so there's a there is issues, and so it's not as simple as like why don't they just transition? Uh, so I appreciate you making the, making those points. And like I said in the beginning, I think that's one of the the best things you do in this book is that you it's a blended truth. It's it's there are things that are definitely issues with the system as set up. Uh, but you also let people know like, Hey, it was designed to be this way. Now let's, let's continue on with kind of, um, the, one of the quotes and, and you kind of go back and forth with whether or not you agree with it, but the, the quote about, and I forget who you pull it from, but rich farmers grow food for poor people and poor farmers grow food for rich people. Uh, I found that to be like a very insightful idea. Uh, often when you think about kind of the elitism in some of the, the newer food system conversation. Yeah, no, totally. Especially, I mean, this ties really well into the whole conversation around farmers markets because I think that is one of the places where people go and develop and solidify their ideas about who farmers are as people. Um, is, you know, you go to your local farmers market and you pay like $5 for a bunch of radishes. And yet you're like, but these farmers are poor. Like what's wrong? Like what's happened? How can I pay so much here? And then, so I guess if these farmers who are making $5 for a bunch of radish, when I could buy them at, you know, Safeway for $1.50, those farmers must be crazy poor if these farmers are poor. But the reality is like, no, most farmers who sell to at, at the scale of grocery store doing great. They're that's, if you are big enough and effective enough, to be in a, have a good purchasing relationship with a grocery store, it's probably because you run a pretty effective business. Um, which I, which, you know, I think there's so much to that quote and I, and I cut, I'm torn about how much I believe it always. And, you know, cause I think I go out as I'm like out in the world, I very much rub up against alternate, like different ways that that could be interpreted. But yeah, I mean, I think the obvious, the straightforward way to think of it is like, you know, we look at someone like Jan Mills who grows corn and soybeans or Clay who grows corn and soybeans. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's high fructose corn syrup. That's cheap meat. That's like your McDonald's hamburger patty or your chicken nuggets. And they're both doing very well. They're, you know, they have good salaries. They're growing wealth every year. They're growing their business. They're buying acres. They're doing great. And then we look at other people I talked to in the book, um, Georgie Smith, uh, you know, even folks like Sapsucker Farms, which is probably the most effective, the most well-run smaller farm um, in the book. And they, it, they're like just barely getting by. And you're like, how are these people, you know, selling these relatively high value products and, and just not making it work? And, you know, part of the answer to that is scale. Scale, like we live in a world where scale matters and, you know, you're competing in the grocery store against people with real scale. And at the end of the day, people have some flexibility on their food budget, but 
it's hard to both charge a really high price and make it super inconvenient, which is what farmer's markets are. Um, like usually people can do one or the other. Like I'm happy to pay $40 for Harry and David to send me like 12 pairs. Um, but, but that's super convenient, right? I just like go to the website and I put it in, then it shows up at my door and they're wrapped in gold and it's glorious. Again, all like Harry and David, um, cuties, Clementines and, um, Palm Wonderful, the wonderful company, Palm Wonderful. They also do like pecans and other nuts. Great examples of the fact that you can definitely become a billionaire growing food. Like you do not have to be, there's no such thing as like farming makes you poor. There are lots of people who have gotten rich farming. Um, and there's, I also hear that people, people say like, you can't brand food that like food is like too basic a commodity to like have a branded version. Well, there's no more basic of a commodity than oil and gas and all of the gas stations are branded. So I think that's one good indication that that's not true. And then also, yeah, like go to your grocery store. There's all, people think that cuties are like a type of fruit. It's, it's a Clementine, but it's a brand that you just have, it's become synonymous, right? It's like a Q-tip or a Kleenex. Um, so, you know, we live in a world where we've just become so attached to the idea of small family farms that we like maybe don't want that to be true or don't want to acknowledge that it's true. But the reality is that farm successful farm businesses exist. They often don't look like farms. They look like food companies, but that doesn't mean that they aren't farms. It's just like, you know, in the same way that like Levi jeans is a jean company and not a denim fabric company. You know, you just, you focus on the thing uh, successful businesses focus on the thing that people actually buy, not on like the most basic form of it. Um, so yeah, I think all of that to say, um, you know, I think there is some real cognitive dissonance, especially for people who do the farmer's market thing, do the CSA thing, spend a lot of money on their food and think that that, that is like an act of charity, that that is, they are doing that to like help the poor beleaguered farmer. But in a lot of cases, it's actually just like, you, you may be buying from a hobby farm. You may be buying from like a retirement farm. You may be like, there's something more complicated and nuanced going on there. And I'll say, you know, Nate story, another expert in the book talks about, you know, he started a company believing that small fam that's there could be enough small, great small business owners in the world that, you know, you could remake agriculture. And the problem that he found is most great small business owners become great big business owners and then crappy small business owners stay small. And that, you know, as soon as people lose the like shine of being small, they, we start to think about them in a different way, but like that is stupid. Like if you're good at business, your business grows. That's a good sign, not a bad sign. And so that's just a challenge for us as we move forward in the way that we think about small family farms. Small family farms. And, and to connect, we're, we're coming close to time, but I got a couple more things that I want to engage the the notion of the the generational farming so you talk about the kind of the age of the farm and we we got into that a little bit but you what i what i really appreciated is kind of the uncovering and discussion of like the family farm as a crutch because where i see that being really important is uh particularly in my field and 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 students i engage right they they're at they're in a college setting but a lot of them may go back to the family farm and what you hear about the family farm, you use all these adjectives to describe the farm and the farmer and like grit and, and, and work ethic and, and all these things that are often synonymous with farm life. But the family farm crutch isn't really part of it. And so 
whether or not that person endures, sustains, and all that, well, if they have the crutch, maybe they exit something that they could have endured, right? Did did they? So I appreciate you bringing it up. So talk a little bit more about the the, the family crutch um, and and this notion when you talk because you just were talking about small business and businesses that it's often a disconnect between the way we think about entrepreneurship and business and then in agriculture where the family the the far, family farm is a crutch versus kind of being excited about kind of exiting a bit like selling off the business and exiting is is a sign of success in other fields and and even failure is more welcomed in other fields yes this was such a challenging thing for me to talk about because one, you know, think when I was reaching for examples to talk about, I don't, I don't want, I didn't want to name anyone I knew who I was like, I don't know that they may be meant to be a farmer, but alas, they are one. And they, you know, have, they went to, they went to college for two years and it didn't work out. And they, you know, worked in town for a few years, but then they maybe quit and maybe got fired. And then, and here they are 27 back on the farm, hate their dad hate the work don't but like they're happy to to be outside and to I don't know they know they'll never get fired <laughs> from from the job and I, I talked to a farmer who who talked about you know how his how his son reacted to him selling the farm and how you know when they were first talking about it his son didn't really say anything and um you know kind of thought it was whatever and then once it was done the sense of betrayal that his son felt that like, Oh God, you took away my safety net. I would like, what if I needed to come back and work on the farm? I like, I was counting on that as, you know, that being a thing that I could do. And in a lot of ways, I think his dad was glad, glad to have taken it away that he, you know, he didn't want his son to, to come back to a life that for him was very hard and very discouraging and, you know, not worth it for, you know, having survived the eighties and, and a number of other things. But yeah, I, it is, you know, there's not enough competitiveness. I talk about this in two other ways. You know, the fact that there's no, there's no license to farm. There is no test. You, there's no requirements. Anyone can farm. If you own land and you like have access to enough money to get started, there's, there's anyone can do it. Not a lot of other fields where that is true. You need more, um, Right. In most states, I mean, in most states, you need more licensing to become a beautician than you need to become a police officer. And you definitely need more training to become a police officer than you need to become a farmer. But a farmer affects so much of like the natural world around us. And, you know, you can look at the Midwest and think, you know, they're affecting groundwater. They're affecting, you know, like wild populations. They're affecting air quality. And you're just like, you don't even need a high school education. Anyone can do it if you have the right connections, basically. And so, you know, that might be okay. That might be real. And we might want to allow that. But then I think at the very least, we should be talking as a society, perhaps about removing bad actors. You know, there's like this assumption that the free market does that, that if you're bad enough at farming, you're going to go out of business. No, that's not true. Like we know that that's not true because we know that as long as you can make your property pay, your property tax payments and you own some land, like you're going to continue basically forever. And so then what do we do, right? We have basically no no labor or environmental regulations around farming. So that's never going to remove anyone. And so this is why, like, just farmland never really transitions except through death. And, like, normally it transitions just, like, to the next generation of people in that family. Again, skilled or not. And I think that demands us to ask real questions about, you know, we expect... We expect that farmers are skilled and that they learn all this skill basically from just, like, being around it. But, like... 
if Larry Page's kids grew up like going to the, you know, living near the Google campus, would we think that they are fit to be CEOs of Google? Like no other world do we think that just like hanging around long enough actually gives you enough skills to be in charge of of a big organization that does really important work. Really important work is right. We're in the we're we're feeding whether we're feeding domestically, feeding abroad. Like there's feeding is is part of the conversation, and you bring that up quite a bit in in two regards. Uh, getting to time, I want to. And with two things, one, the kind of you boil it down to this quote, all the evidence points to the fact that a person really does have to be rich enough to farm. Uh, and so we'll talk about that a little bit, but you kind of come to that conclusion and then you start driving towards like what's next. And you you use this terminology, big team farms. So tell us a little about what, what are big team farms and how, how might they get replicated if they are the solution? Yeah. So the first part of that question, you know, being rich enough to farm is like, there's no like value judgment attached to that. Like it just is what it is, right? Like there's lots of things you have to be rich enough to do. Like things cost money in the world and we live in a capitalist society, but like, let's stop pretending that everyone could just like bootstrap it or that when you're 28 years old, you should be able to just like figure out how to start a farm if you want to. No. And like, when we look around at who gets into agriculture, let's stop being surprised that it's a lot of independently wealthy people, that Bill Gates is the world's, is the US's largest landholder. Of course he is. It's very expensive to farm. I'm sure the ultra wealthy are also America's biggest yacht owners. Farms are essentially yachts in this case. Like they're very expensive. They're very valuable. People like to have them. Great. Stop expecting 28 year olds to have them. They're never going to have them unless we change something big. So this is where the big team farms come in. Um, and for me, you know, the most people love to look to USDA or love to look to other and just say, you know, if we could just fix the policy, then we could fix agriculture. We could really transform it here. I do not see that. That is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how policy works. Policy doesn't lead, it follows. Um, so let's talk about how we're going to create something economically that will actually be viable and competitive against this kind of deeply entrenched system. In my mind, you know, I guess the benefit of the really messed up way that agriculture works in a lot of senses is that there, there's a lot of not very competitive farm businesses. If you could just be competitive, you could put a lot of people, you could turn over a lot of farmland. I was going to say you could put a lot of people out of business. That's not a very popular thing to say in the agricultural world, but like, business is going out of business is good. It means the market is competitive. It means that there's turnover. It means that fresh ideas are coming to the fore. And like, you know, this is how ecosystems work. So big team farms, basically just the idea that family is probably not the the key economic unit of farming. Let's talk about how you, you know, if you are passionate about being out in the field and, and scouting and agronomics, great. Hire someone else to do your marketing to build your brand, to build your business, hire someone else to do your accounting, to do your legal, to help, you know, deal with investor relations. Like, you know, if, if you were a startup, if you were 28 years old and you wanted to start a company in any other way, you would get a team probably of people, not just related to you, probably not your partner. And you would go and you would talk to people with money and you would try to sell them on your idea on the market opportunity you've identified on how your specific skills and the skills of your team are going to, you know, help you fill a market. You would be, you know, you would 
secure that funding and like arrange how your company is going to work legally as, you know, split up ownership or equity amongst the, the people involved. And then, and, and like, and that would work in farming. Like we, we assume that it wouldn't because we just have such a fantastical love of family as the unit, but like, there's no reason why we can't build farms that way that are likely to be way more responsive environmentally, way more responsive to like consumer wants and needs, you know, better stewards of land because land is not something that will just be held as like an investment class. It will actually be a business asset used to create something of value in the world. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's a very different, it's a paradigm shift from what we have right now, but in terms of, you know, blazing a new trail, Ag doesn't need to do that. This is like, this is how startups work. This is how entrepreneurship works in every sector except agriculture. Um, and, you know, I think in a lot of ways, it's just as simple as saying, what if we thought of farms as businesses instead? And then just starting from there and and building, you know, there's there's a million different ways to organize this. I've, I've talked about employee ownership, employee management, um, you know, just the basic startup equity model. There's so many different ways to come at it, but just like, all of it comes down to what if we stop thinking of farms as investments? What if we move away from the family as the economic unit of the farm and start thinking about farms as teams of people, as successful businesses that are focused on production, as you know, a competitive economy of businesses that compete against one each other, compete against one another, and grow and respond to you know the actual conditions of the world. Appreciate that. Thank you for inviting us into this big team farms concept. Uh, now to to the kind of more important points. How uh, are, is there an award for like chapter titles and subsection titles? Because I was laughing the entire time. So we've got like what the actual farm, son of a farm, 100% that farm, which might not most people might not get the reference to, but my son certainly understands the Lizzo reference. Uh, and then we've got uh, the the subtitle or subsections here. Will the real small farm family farm please stand up? The silence of the farm, zero farms given. And then again, one of my uh, four-year-old son's favorites, these are not the farms you are looking for. <laughs> so I mean, I appreciate all of that uh, creativity. I, it it, ha- it didn't go past me. Uh, so I oh, appreciate that. And and if there's an award out there, let me know, because I will gladly nominate you for best uh, chapter titles and, and subsection titles. Uh, well, thank you. I was it was fun to write them. And then also I was just like, it's such a downer at times that I was like, people will need something to latch on to to get them out of this. <laughs> And 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 I, and I did, and I, hopefully other people do as well. Uh, we're, we're coming to the time, so I really appreciate you joining us, Sarah. Um, thank you so much for joining the channel, uh, bringing your book on, and letting us talk a little about it. Uh, please feel free to pick the book up. Um, you can get it at multiple locations. If you want to send people to a specific location, let me know. I think we can link it. You can even reference it here on the podcast. Uh, but again, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was so fun. <laughs>